from Colossians 1, 24 through 29. It is on page 983 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, it's good morning. Good to be able to see you guys. Um, we're going to pick right up in the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. Um, these believers, these Christians that Paul is writing to, lived in a city called Colossae. If you can picture in your mind modern-day Turkey, the city of Colossae was found in the southwest corner of modern-day Turkey. And so a man named Epaphras has talked to the Apostle Paul. Paul is in Rome, Italy. He is under house arrest because he is a preacher of the gospel. He talks about Jesus, and people didn't like that, so they put him in prison. Well, while he is under house arrest in prison, a man named Epaphras who helped start the church in Colossae, has shown up. And he's telling Paul about the Colossians, the believers, the Christians that are living in this city. And so what we've seen is this, is that Epaphras shows up and is talking to Paul about the gospel. And he says, you'll, you'll never imagine what's going on. The good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners has completely changing everything in the lives of these Christians in the city of Colossae. And what it causes Paul to do is rejoice. He gets extremely thankful. And in the first week that we looked at in Paul's letter, as he writes back to the Colossians, in light of this good news message that has reached the ears and the hearts of the Colossians and has now reached the Apostle Paul, Paul is just thankful. So he writes a letter back and goes, I'm just thankful the gospel, the good news message that Jesus saved sinners is actually evidence that this has taken root in your lives and I'm so thankful for this. Then he turns and he gives a prayer and he prays for them that they would grow in their knowledge concerning this good news of Jesus Christ that they've heard. So he's not satisfied that they've just merely heard and initially receive the message, but he wants them also to continue to grow in their knowledge of the gospel and in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then in last week, we saw that Paul even calls these believers to not shift from the hope that they have of this good news message. There were people in Colossae who were coming along and saying that this good news message, these truths, these realities of Jesus Christ, who he is, fully God, fully man, People were trying to undercut that. They were trying to teach against that. And so what Paul does is he reorients them vertically back to Jesus Christ 
and says, I do not want you to shift from these true things we know concerning Christ, because the moment you shift from them, you shift from the hope of the gospel. And I don't want you to shift from the hope of the gospel. But in our fourth week this morning, Paul's going to round the corner a little bit. Remember, he's writing a letter. This is a real letter that really took place. He's writing to real people who existed in a real city, who existed in a real time, who really lived life. And what he's going to do is he's going to turn the corner and he's going to shift his focus, move his focus from the Colossians themselves to the ministry that was given to him by God. So for the first three weeks it was, I'm writing to you, I'm thankful for you, I'm praying for you, I want you to know this, how Jesus Christ has saved you and made you right with the Father. Now I'm going to turn a little bit, he says, and I want you to know something true about me, I want you to know about my ministry and the way God has called me to proclaim and to talk about Jesus Christ. But what we're going to notice is this, that even with this change in focus, Paul still does not lose sight of the good news message of Jesus Christ. See, Paul had a message which solely rested upon Jesus. And he had a mission to proclaim and make Jesus known. And he says in the verse 24 that we're going to read and look at here in a little bit, that he was even willing to joyfully suffer for the advancement of this message for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So in these verses, verses 24 through 29, in Colossians chapter 1, in a nutshell what we see is this, that the gospel message of Jesus Christ fueled Paul's mission to go and proclaim Christ, even if it meant his suffering. And so from our section of Scripture this morning, what we're going to see is this, is that for every believer... For every Christian, for every person who has been born again, who has repented of their sins, turned from their sins, and turned to Christ by faith, what we're going to see is that the message of Christ compels mission even if it means our suffering. It's going to be the main idea we're going to see this morning from the description we get of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And that main idea is going to break down into three ways. What we're going to see is this. A believer has... A message, a believer has a mission, and a believer has suffering. Believer's message, a believer's mission, and a believer's suffering. So in your copy of Scripture, again, if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can find one of those black hardback books around you. That is a copy of Scripture, and you can turn to page 983, I believe, is the page there, and what you should find is Colossians chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 24 through 29. What we're going to do is we're going to go a little bit out of order, because I think it's easiest to understand what Paul is saying here. So we're going to look at the middle section of our scripture, then we're going to look at the end section, and then we're going to flow all the way back up to the beginning, okay? So in order for us to see a believer's message, we're going to start in verse 25, and we're going to read down to 27. Paul writes this, In regard to the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. This stewardship that was given to me was for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed 
to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? It is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. A believer's message. As a Christian, you and I just have a message. And this message centers on Jesus Christ alone in the hope that we have in Him. The message of Jesus is the foundation of all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do. And it was absolutely no different for the Apostle Paul. Paul reminds the Colossians that he was not only a minister of the gospel, we saw that last week, but he is also a minister of the church. He's a servant of the gospel and he's a servant of the church. His ministry, he says, was according to the stewardship from God. He recognized that this ministry was given to him for you. And in context, what he's saying is this, God has called me out. He's called me to be a servant of the church and I want to be a good steward of this. I want to use this gift, this special calling that God has given me in a, in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. And I want to do this for you. You specifically, Colossians, but in the wider context means you specifically as an individual sitting here this morning. You as the collective part of the church, us as Delta Church, we are recipients of this stewardship, of this special ministry that was given to the Apostle Paul. God had called Paul and was going to use him for something unique in God's unfolding plan of redemption. This is the meaning of the stewardship that was given to Paul. Paul was a minister with a message, and Paul's message was what? In verse 25 it says it was to make the word of God fully known. So he gets very specific and says, this is the thing that God himself was calling me to do. He was calling me to a very specific mission, a very specific message. I was to take the word of God and to make it fully known. But we have to ask the question, what specifically is the word that Paul was determined to make fully known. I mean, that's good that he says, I was called to make the word of God fully known, but, we, but what exactly is that word? What is the content of the word? What is the content of that message that absolutely consumed the apostle Paul? The answer is wrapped up in verses 26 and 27. If you look in your copy of scripture, you'll see Paul uses a word twice. The word is mystery. Paul's use of this word does not indicate a secret teaching or ceremony that is only for a select few. So when you read that word mystery, what we might do is wrongfully draw the conclusion that there's this mysterious thing, this unknowable thing that only, only the elite get to have access to. And Paul says, I am one of those elite and I'm just sort of sparsely going around and just letting people into the secret knowledge of this elite thing that, that only, only a select few are going to be able to understand and know about. He, that's not what Paul is driving at when he's, when he's using that term mystery. His use of the word doesn't indicate a secret thing that only a select few know, but he's actually referring to truth that has been revealed to all believers in the New Testament. So in verse 26, when he says this mystery was hidden for ages and generations, but now, now in this time of 
Christ, now the time of the New Testament, God is revealing something to the saints. And it is this. He, he further even defines this word of God that he's fully making known. He calls it a mystery. But then even there we go, well, what does he mean by mystery? And we don't have to wonder. He fully even explains that all the way down at the end of verse 27. He says the content of this mystery, the greatness of the glorious riches of this mystery boils down to this. We have a hope of glory. We have Christ in us. The mystery that Paul was called to speak, to proclaim, to teach is this. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is now in you. He lives and abides in you. Not merely with you or beside you or above you or below you, but he now dwells in you if you are in Jesus Christ. This, says Paul, is the hope of glory. Christ living in you is the foundation and cause of your hope that you will enter into the fullness of divine glory. Christ living in you is the assurance that you and I will share in the glory that is to come. The hope of glory that you and I have centers and rests on Jesus Christ alone. This mystery is no longer hidden but has now been revealed to the saints. And God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of this message through the Apostle Paul. This is the dumbfounding thing. When you go and read the Old Testament, the Bible that we have, our copy of Scripture, it splits into two sections. You have something called the Old Testament and something called the New Testament. All the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ. And all the New Testament looks back and centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And when you go into the Old Testament, there was little hints, there was little clues that there was going to be this one, this Savior who was going to come and draw people into a right relationship with God the Father. But in the Old Testament, it mainly looked like this. It was just going to be for Jewish people, for God's people. But the mystery that is just dumbfounding and blowing Paul away is this, is that God is actually choosing the Apostle Paul to make known among the saints, amongst God's people, that this great, glorious, rich mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, is not just for a specific people of the Jewish nation. It is for Gentiles, and that's a good news for all of us here. In the Bible, we fall into that category People who are not ethnically Jewish. And so the fact that Paul's standing there going, this is phenomenal, this is, this is glorious, this is great, because we now get to partake of this reality. We get to have an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We actually have a sure and foundational hope. We can actually get to partake forever of the glory of Christ because of all that Jesus Christ has done. This is the message that drove the Apostle Paul. So the question becomes, so what? I mean, good for you, Paul. I mean, so far what we've seen is this. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle, and this is where I go and I tell people. But when we read the Bible, the Bible isn't afraid of our questions. And the question that we have to ask so far when we looked at these first few verses is like, who cares? 
I mean, I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul was called to do this. What does this mean for me? What on earth does Paul, talking about his ministry to the Colossian church, what does it have to do with me? And see, what we may be tempted to do is read about the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul and say to ourselves, well, that's good for Paul, but it's certainly not for me. See, I'm not an apostle. I know that for absolutely sure. I can't possibly read how he related to others and think that I should be the one doing the exact same thing. And as a result, we draw the conclusion that these verses, or any verses for that matter of fact, that talk about someone else's ministry just have nothing to do with me individually. But these verses that we read, verses 24 through 29, these verses are not just merely descriptive of the Apostle Paul's ministry. What we're not supposed to do is just read the Bible, come to these verses and go, okay, this is good. Verse 1 to 23, it's very me-focused. I can see, I see how this is, this is good and I'm learning. I see how Jesus Christ saved me. But when I get to verses 24 to 29, we can just sort of check out and go, well, that's just good. That's just Paul describing some stuff. Let's, let's get on to, to some better things. Let's learn some stuff specifically about me. Paul's going, no, this isn't just me describing my ministry for the sake of describing my ministry. These verses are not merely descriptive of Paul's ministry. Rather, they are prescriptive of what you and I are called to do as well. See, Paul's ministry is an example for you and I. While Paul is in prison, he's going to write another letter to another church. There are some Christians living in the Greek town of Philippi. And he writes a letter to the Philippians. And at the end of that letter, what he writes is this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, you practice these things. Paul is holding himself up as an example. Saying, as you see me live my life, leverage my life, give myself over to the message of Jesus Christ, I want you to look at me as I imitate Christ himself and to use my life as an example for how you and I are to live. Paul's message is every believer's message. And what Paul does next is he connects that message to mission by showing that the message of Christ is what fuels a believer's mission to present everyone mature in Christ. And that's exactly where he goes to next. So look in your copy of Scripture. Verses 25 through 27 show us a believer's message, but Paul connects that to our mission in verses 28 and 29. A believer's message fuels or compels him to a mission. So Paul says this. It is true. We have a hope of glory. It is Christ in you. So therefore, we proclaim Christ. And we proclaim Christ in two ways. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? Why are you doing that, Paul? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. I struggle to present everyone mature in Christ. I struggle warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. I toil to proclaim Jesus Christ, but I don't do this struggling and toiling to present everyone mature in Christ with all my energy, but I do so with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. 
See, you and I are called to proclaim Jesus Christ. We're called to talk about Jesus Christ. We're called to have Christ so woven into our DNA as believers and followers of Jesus to where our lives are lived on mission in such a way where we're just talking about Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus presents his body as holy, blameless, and above reproach before God, so Paul is toiling to present everyone mature in Christ. We saw this last week, that Jesus, the supreme Lord over creation, our supreme Lord in our new creation, it is he who made peace by the blood of his cross. You and I are once enemies with God, but they have now have the option of having peace with God through Jesus Christ and his work, the blood that was shed on the cross. And Paul says, in you, you and I, who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now done a work in his body of flesh. We have now been reconciled. And it is Christ who is presenting us before God as holy and blameless and above reproach. And it's like Paul says, I see the presenting work that Jesus is doing, and I want to mimic that in my life. Just as Jesus is presenting you and I before God as holy and blameless above reproach, just as God is at work doing these things, it fuels Paul to go, I so desire to present you guys mature in Christ. This is Paul's mission. And it's subsequently our mission as well. We are to warn everyone, telling them of the dangers of sin and the need to repent. We are to teach everyone Positively instructing God's people from God's word so that they may know God. And here is what I love about this reality. Is that Paul fully recognizes that this is hard. Right? The words he uses in verse 29 are the words toil and struggle. This idea behind the word toil is this. is just that exhaustingly hard work. The idea behind the word struggling is where we actually get the word agonizing. And so it's agonizing like an athlete struggles and exhausts himself, striving toward a goal. So Paul here is saying, I'm struggling, I'm working hard, I'm exhausting myself, I'm agonizing over this idea of making sure that my life is leveraged in such a way where I present everyone mature in Christ. What I love about it is this, as he says, yes, we are to toil, struggling with all Christ's energy, which he powerfully works in me. He simultaneously holds these things up. Who is helping you proclaim the message of Christ and live on mission for Christ? Is it you? Yes. Is it Christ? Yes. The answer is both and. It's not just you and not Jesus. It's not just Jesus and you standing there, closed, arms closed, waiting for him to do something, it's this. I am going to leverage my life on mission to make Christ known. And it's simultaneously God working in you with his unending energy to sustain you, to keep you, to empower you so that you and I can work to present everyone mature in Christ. See, believers have a message. Believers have a mission. But believers are also called to joyful suffering. See, Paul knew that this message and this mission would involve suffering. It would involve suffering. Yet this did not deter Paul from the ministry that God had given to him. The reason why Paul toils, the reason why 
he proclaims the reason why he ministers to the church to make the mystery of Christ and the hope of glory fully known is driven by his desire to see Christ's afflictions receive their full reward. So in verse 24, when you go all the way back up to the top right now, what we see is this. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, which is just an insane statement. It's not, it's not something we commonly say. It's not something we commonly think. Paul is saying this. Because of the message of Jesus Christ has so gripped me, because of the mission that he has given me, because that I actually am no longer running a hell-bound race, but Jesus Christ himself has intervened in my life, has saved me from his wrath, saved me from my proclivity to sin, and has actually transferred me and made me his own. It fuels me to proclaim. It fuels me to teach. It fuels me to warn. It fuels me to toil. And it fuels me to struggle to make Jesus Christ known. And I can rejoice in my sufferings. I can rejoice in my afflictions for your sake. If in my flesh it is necessary for me to receive affliction in order to proclaim Jesus Christ to you, he says, I will rejoice in this. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. For a believer, the gospel compels us to rejoice in our sufferings as we extend the purpose of Christ's afflictions to a world that needs to know about Christ's afflictions. So the question is this. Again, another question we can, we can ask the text here. So I don't know if you feel the awkwardness of what the Apostle Paul says here in verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So we ask the question, like, that's a little weird. Like, right, there's something lacking in Jesus Christ that doesn't quite seem to mesh with everything we just said last week, verses 15 through 20, where it's Jesus is supreme because of his nature over, over creation. He's Lord of creation. He sustains all things. He creates all things. He's supreme because of his cross. We went through this whole list of six different things where it's like, look at Jesus, look how he's supreme, look at how he's the Lord, look how he reigns and creates and sustains and holds and rules over all things. And then you come to verse 24, and it's just sort of shocking. But Paul's filling up something that is lacking in Christ's affliction. So the question we have to ask, what does Paul mean by he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, the first thing we can say is what it does not mean. So here's what Paul does not mean when he says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is not saying that the redemptive sufferings of Jesus on the cross are deficient. He's not saying they are incomplete. He's not saying that they somehow need to be supplemented by something that Paul or any of us might supply. He's not, that's not the lack that he is talking about in regard to Christ's afflictions. Christ is the supreme Savior, and he has sufficiently provided all we need for salvation through his work on the cross. And we have seen this at least twice in Colossians alone. So you go back to verses 12 through 14. He says, The Father has qualified you and I to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. It is in the Son, Jesus Christ, we 
have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. So Paul's not waffling here. He's saying, in Christ, you have redemption. You have hope. You have forgiveness of your sins in Christ. A couple verses later, verses 19 through 20, Paul continues to write. He says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through Christ God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So context tells us that when we read verse 24, Paul is not saying that the lack that we find in Christ's afflictions is his lack of power or ability to be able to soundly save us. That's not what he's talking about. So what exactly is lacking in Christ's afflictions if it's not this? Listen to this quote. I think it helps us with the answer. Paul's sufferings complete Christ's afflictions not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they are deficient in worth as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known and trusted in the world. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. They must be carried by the ministers of the word and those ministers of the word fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to the nations of the world. So what is lacking then in Christ's afflictions is not Here's a big word, is not propitiation, but presentation. See, in Christ's cross, what we have is this idea of propitiation. Propitiation is the idea where Jesus absorbs the wrath of God that was due to you, and because of what he did on the cross, he makes you right with God. That's the nutshell idea of propitiation. Christ's cross was for propitiation. You and I carrying our cross daily, laying down our lives, is not to fill up what was lacking in that, but is to fill up what's lacking in presentation. You and I are to carry the cross of Christ, carry our afflictions for the sake of Christ, so that way we can present Jesus Christ and his power and complete ability to save sinners to the world. God's answer to this lack is to call the people of Christ to make a personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to the world. And in doing this, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We finish what they were designed for, a personal presentation to the people who do not know about the infinite worth of Christ's afflictions. And I love this because it's this reality which just absolutely fuels Paul and fuels the joy in his sufferings. See, Paul thinks this way. If presenting Christ's afflictions to the world, which is dying and going to hell, means suffering his own afflictions, then he says, so be it. 
I'm going to rejoice in my sufferings. The mystery of Christ and the hope of glory compels him to endure everything for the sake of the elect. Why? That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God intends, listen, this is is what ties it all together. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. Our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. So since Christ is no longer on the earth, he wants his body, he wants the church, he wants you, he wants me to go to the nations, to go to our state, to go to our city, to go to our neighbors, to go to our co-workers, to go to our classmates, to go to our professors willing to lay ourselves down to suffer willingly the afflictions that come from proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has ordained that the message and the afflictions of Christ are known upon the heels, upon the backs of God's people's afflictions. That's just the way he's ordained it. And Paul says that is not a hopeless road. That's not a unhappy road. He says it is a rejoicing road. You can rejoice in this. These sufferings, these afflictions we may experience are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that we will be able to know fully in Jesus Christ. Christ is no longer on the earth. He wants his body, the church, to reveal his sufferings in its sufferings. Let me tell you a story here that exemplifies what this, what this looks like. It's a, it's, a, it's a really vivid story that I think portrays the point. There's a man named Michael Card who tells the story of a Maasai warrior named Joseph. One day Joseph was walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads when he is met by someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, Joseph accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. So Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross, about the sufferings of Jesus and the salvation that it offered, expecting to see their faces light up just the way his face had lit up at the reception and the hearing and the believing of this good news. But to his amazement, the villagers not only did not care, they became violent toward him. So the men of the village seized Joseph, held him to the ground, while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. But Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole, and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from from people he had known all his life. He decided that he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. He, he assumed that maybe the fault was with him. That's why they beat him with barbed wire and left him to die. 
So after rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back to his village and share his faith once more. And as Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus, saying, He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded this message with the people who have just beat him with barbed wire a few days earlier. But again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and he was held to the ground. And while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal, once more they dragged him unconscious from the village out into the bush and left him to die for a second time. Michael Card makes the observation that to have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. But to live through the second was a miracle. But again, days later, Joseph, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, bloodied, beaten, but determined to go back to his village. So he returned to the small village for a third time. And this time, they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. And as they flogged him for the third time, and probably the last time, he began to speak again to them of the saving work of Jesus Christ, the Lord. But this time, before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. So this time, for the third time, he awoke not out in the bush, but he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health, for he would later find out that the entire village had come to Christ. That's rejoicing and suffering. Fueled by the message of Jesus Christ to a mission to where that person, Joseph, was willing to suffer the afflictions of Jesus Christ himself in order to present the afflictions to a people who so desperately needed to know. Who else was going to tell that tribe about the afflictions of Christ if not for Joseph? Most of us would chicken out at the first telling Because we might be beaten. Joseph was whipped with barbed wire, left to die, went back, re-whipped with barbed wire, went back, re-whipped with barbed wire. Why? Because he was fueled by the message of Jesus Christ. He had a hope and glory. He had Christ in him. And it compelled him, even at the sake of his own suffering, at the sake of his own afflictions, to go and proclaim Jesus Christ to a people who needed to know Christ. I think the connection for us is this. God is calling you and I in this text this morning to live for the sake of the gospel and to do that through suffering. Christ chose suffering. The suffering of the cross did not just happen to him. When you go to the gospel of Matthew and read about the life of Christ, Jesus could have wimped out. All the way back in the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, Satan comes to him and tempts him in the wilderness saying, listen, I will give you everything that is rightfully yours. Just avoid the cross. But Jesus rebukes Satan with the very words of God and says, no, I am going to go and do this. It is I who am going to go to the cross. I am heading here. I was created and sent. I was not created. I was sent by God, marked in flesh, to come and live for this reason, to suffer and die upon the cross. 
Jesus chose suffering. It didn't just happen to him. He chose it as the way to create and perfect the church. Now he calls us to choose suffering, to mimic our lives after Christ. That is, he calls us to take up our cross and follow him on the Calvary Road and deny ourselves and make sacrifices for the sake of presenting his suffering to the world and ministering to the church. Our message and our mission is worthy because Christ is supremely worthy even if it means our suffering. So how do we respond to this? See, for some of you right now, God may be calling you to a life of joyful suffering in a hard place. God right now may be fueling something inside of you. Perhaps he is calling you this morning to go and fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in North Africa. Maybe he's calling some of you to go to Malaysia. Maybe he's calling some of you to go to Indonesia. Maybe he's calling some of you to go to China or the Dominican Republic or even Italy. But right now, maybe God is calling you to go and fill up what is lacking in the presentation of Christ's afflictions to this place. And the answer is, will you respond in obedience? For some of you, maybe it's not a call to go and joyfully suffer in a hard place. But maybe he's calling you right now to a life of joyful suffering in your workplace, your neighborhood, or your family. But no matter the place, whether it is overseas or whether it is over the kitchen table, we can rest assured of this. Christ is calling you and I to a life on mission so that you and I may present the glorious riches of Christ's afflictions to those who have never heard. There are no alternatives here. There's no magical, mystical third ground where some people are called to do this and there's not others who are called to do this. There is no alternative here. There are no special groups of believers who are exempt to this call. So the final question of the morning just boils down to this. To whom is God calling you to take Christ's afflictions? Who is it? Big assumption here. The assumption isn't, well, he might be doing it. The assumption is he is doing it. To whom is God calling you to go and present the afflictions of Christ to? And as God answers that prayer, I pray that we will respond with an obedient toiling, struggling to present everyone mature in Christ with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within us. This is why we're, why we're going to Chicago in a couple of weeks. We want to go up there and we want to present... Christ's afflictions to a people who don't know about Christ. The affliction that you might have to suffer to do that is maybe not go to the movies that week so you can buy some school goods for people. That might be your affliction that you're going to have to suffer for that mission trip. That Sunday, September the 13th, we're asking, we're praying, God, send people who don't know Jesus into our midst. And what that might mean is you're going to have to bear some affliction in the workplace, letting other people know that you are actually a believer. And when they make the connection, you believe in Jesus? And you don't get that promotion, you don't get that pay raise, that friendship is sort of now awkward because you invited that person to church. The Apostle Paul is calling us to rejoice in our afflictions as we seek to present Christ's afflictions to our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. So I am praying that we would be a people who bend our knee and rejoice, saying, there is somebody, I know somebody God is calling me to, and I'm going to invite this person. 
Maybe that means for this event we're coming up in the next couple of days, Wednesday and Thursday, as we seek to go to UIS and just go, there is a world of people there that we want to know. We want them to know Jesus. So it might mean that you maybe have to cash in a half a day of vacation so you can show up on Wednesday to help do the table from four to six. Maybe it means you don't eat as well so you can use your budget money to go and actually spend food on money for that event dinner that we're going to have on Thursday. Now, I don't know what it looks like for you, but my assumption is God is calling all of us here to do something along these lines. And may we just strive in obedience, not resting in our power, but be, being sustained with all endurance, with joy, giving thanks to the Father according to his mighty power that he works within us. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are worthy. And I ask now that you, Father, would just do a mighty, mighty work in our lives. God, I pray that you would raise up a people that Delta Church would be a place where the mission of proclaiming the mission of struggling and striving to warn and teach and present everyone mature in Christ would be grounded not in our own strength, but be grounded in the strength and the energy of Christ. It would not be rooted in some sort of mystical or magical message that we come up with, but it would be rooted in the very message of Jesus Christ. God, help us to joyfully receive any afflictions that may come our way all for the sake of filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions, the presentation of the saving power of Jesus Christ alone. And it is your name I pray these things. Amen.